The Philistines' understanding of the ark was mistaken in last week's message when we went through chapters 5 and 6. And we, we saw that, sure, they won the battle, but they were devastated by the ark that they thought was supposed to be their spoil of this victory of the war that they had with Israel. And so they found out that the ark had a mind of its own, and it, and it wasn't weak after all. And we saw how the Philistines misunderstood the power of the ark. But what did the Israelites misunderstand about the ark? So the Israelites were mistaken by thinking that they could twist God's arm or manipulate God by having his piece of furniture, right? And they thought the ark was more of this superstitious good luck charm that could be used to manipulate God. And instead of victory, they suffered this devastating defeat when they tried to use it for that purpose. And the Philistines were mistaken about the ark as well in thinking that the symbol was going to be paying homage to their god Dagon. And they found that because of their arrogance that God ravaged Philistia. And when the ark ends up back in Israel in this town named Beth Shemesh, God struck down and killed many Israelites because of their sacrilege looking into the ark. And we saw that God is very dangerous to try to manipulate when we try to use him as a science experiment or out of superstition. And in chapter 7, we're going to see how leadership changes things. That there's a marked difference between the previous leadership of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas and to what is to come with Samuel. And God takes the old leadership off the scene, and now we have Samuel. And there's quite a bit of time passing between where we even heard about Samuel way back when in chapter 4, verse 1. And then you don't hear about him until chapter 7. So all through chapters 4 through 6, you hear nothing of Samuel. So let's start in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Then the men of kirjath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in kirjath Jerem a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So twenty years have passed before Samuel came into this public leadership role, and we see how God removed the previous leadership and provided this new leadership in His grace, in His mercy. And through Samuel, His anointed servant, God's mercy is shown to His people. And that's the whole point of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Through God's appointed servant, the Lord turns His mercy to His people again. It's the Lord's ministry of mercy. So what's going on here in these verses? You know, Israel felt estranged from the Lord. And the ark wasn't moved back to Shiloh, you know, that place of worship. Instead, it remained in Kirjath Urim. Pretty strange, right? What's going on here? Something is wrong with their attitudes. And because of that, they couldn't draw near to God. So the Israelites were just experiencing what was already in their hearts. And the crisis that the Israelites faced with the Philistines revealed what the true spiritual condition of their hearts were. It isn't that they were trying to, it wasn't that they weren't trying to seek the Lord, but they didn't find a way to approach the Lord successfully. When we are far from God, it's amazing how clearly God communicates His truth, but how we don't take Him seriously, isn't it? Do you recall the first two commandments? 
This is what Samuel is calling the Israelites back to. And we see this all over the Bible. To return to the first commandment and to be obedient to that. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20 and verses 2 through 4. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. The first two commandments are, No other gods before me, and make no images. And Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Even your own blood, your family can't rival him. Jesus is basically saying Exodus chapter 20 verse 3. Jesus demands the place of supreme affection in your life with no competitors. It's just the first commandment. And Jesus calls us back to that. And that's what Samuel is doing. Let's read what Samuel did. Back to verse 3 in chapter 7, 1 Samuel. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and serve the Lord only. What kind of ministry did the Lord provide through Samuel? It's a prophetic ministry that is calling the people to repentance. Samuel is acting as a prophet in verses 3 and 4. And what were the Israelites doing? You know, it's pretty undefined. It's pretty vague. But they were living this shady, sketchy, spiritual life. They were looking to be with the Lord while they were being idolaters at the same time. It's like a married... A man being upset that his wife won't talk to him the whole time he's with other women. How does that work? Right? God don't play that. Right? God loves his people dearly and, and he'll he'll have no rival. He he's not gonna share in that loyalty. Psalms chapter sixteen, verses two and four. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. The blessing of good leadership is that it it firmly brings the focus onto God. And people will consequently, they'll be blessed by that. And you look at Samuel, how it shows them the cost of following God, and and then he lets them make the decision. What does he say? Back to that verse. If you... Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Then. Right? It's, it's, it's in their court. Good leadership has to give a decisive direction on the important issues. And this particular issue is not one of the minor issues. This particular issue opens the Ten Commandments. It's the first commandment. And it directly deals with pleasing God. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then 
put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths. And the Ashtoreths were the female deities the, um, that they were worshiping. And, and from among you, and prepare your hearts of the Lord and serve him only. Samuel was telling them to focus their repentance. To center their repentance. Samuel is calling them to a specific repentance. You know, it's easy to have this undefined, vague sense of repentance like they did in verse 2. Did you notice that? And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What does that mean? That's very undefined. That's very vague. They lamented. But for what? What did they lament about? It's easy for us to say, Lord, please forgive us of our sins. But for what? What sin are you talking about? What sin exactly? It's different when we get specific, isn't it? If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then specific. Put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. It's specific. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Notice how Samuel directs them to be focused, to be centered, very deliberate, very definite. And notice what happened in verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asterisks and served the Lord only. They were called to a definite repentance and to get rid of, to renounce the false gods. When we truly long after God, He will, he will make a call to loyalty. He's not just going to be like, oh, cool, good job. He's going to say, okay, loyalty. That's what, that's what I want. He does wish for this intimately uh, involvement in our lives, but it has to be on His terms. He can't be God if we're the ones dictating to Him the terms, right? He wouldn't be God then. He dictates the terms. Now, we're not sure how much time elapses between uh, what is taking place in, in verses 3 and 4 and the coming events in verse 5 and the following verses. We don't know. It doesn't say. Verses 3 and 4 could be a summary of, of Samuel's ministry over a long period of time. Or it could be this condensed version of Samuel's preaching. We're just not sure. But whatever the time frame, what could be the possible reasons that are responsible for Israel being involved with, with the idols around them, with the idol worship? Now there could be several reasons why, but I just want to point out three possible reasons. So the first one is peer pressure. Everyone else is doing it. All the older kids, all the older cultures are doing it. Right? So, so we're, we're going to do it. And we as humans, you know, we're, we're naturally religious. We're naturally superstitious. And a second possible reason is, is these Canaanite fertility cults that had these sexual practices with temple prostitutes that were built into their worship. Very tempting to combine your hormones and religion. A third possible reason, they were, they were contacting some type of power. And perhaps there seemed to be an, an advantage to them economically to appease their gods who, who gave increase to their crops, who gave increase to their, herb, uh, their herds, and it was to their advantage so they thought to placate to these gods that would help increase them economically. Whatever the reasons, to stand firm with God often seemed to be very costly. It, it seemed to be very difficult for them. So their repentance was, was focused. It was trying to be centered. But it was really, really difficult for them to do that. 
Look at verse 4 again. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Let's take a look at how this could have been very difficult for the Israelites by looking at kind of a combination of these three reasons. Let's look at the Canaanite fertility cults that had these sexual practices with the temple prostitutes built into their worship. Now, just for a little bit of background, the, the Ashtoreths were, were the female deities. And they had the manifestations of Baal and they had the Ashtoreth goddesses. And there was fertility worship that was a, a difficult kind of repentance for the Israelites to perform. This was really hard for them to repent of. See, this pagan fertility god got a hold of Israel as, as it can be seen in the book of Judges. You can read through Judges and see that. And it was very difficult for the people to give up those practices. Why? Why is it that hard to repent? Because with this fertility worship, Baal and Ashtoreth worship, they could combine sex and religion. Awesome. Right? The church could be combined with a brothel under this guise of religion. They could serve their hormones and their gods at the same time. They could feed their sexual immorality. They could feed all their lusts, all in the name of religion. Cool. Right? And it's, and it's not an easy thing for Israelites just to leave that once they've totally been gripped by it. Once they've practiced it for so long. That wasn't an easy thing for them to leave. So it's a difficult type of repentance. And we might not have these naked figurines or fertility goddesses or anything like that in our house or in our cars. But we do find that we have to be continually called back again and again to repentance because we violate the first commandment all the time. It just looks different. Right? No other gods before me. We do it all the time. We always put something before God. Just like Israel. What was behind paganism anyway? What was be behind that? What, wasn't it the, des the desire to control the gods? Isn't that what's behind paganism? Why, why was there fertility worship? Part of it was because worshipers would, worshipers would go to the Canaanite shrine. They would engage in, in the act of sex with a temple prostitute. And the idea was that the, the sexual act with the temple prostitute would indicate to Baal and Ashtoreth that they should engage in the fertility act as well. That like, hey, here, there, you know, come on. And, and so that would cause their crops and their herds to, to be fertile. That was the idea. And so it was a form of manipulation. Manipulating gods. And we do this down here so, so that Baal will get the idea to do it up there. And so it's manipulation. It's coercion. It was their way of trying to control their gods. When the pagans offered sacrifices, it was a way for them to bribe the gods and, and control them. And sometimes we're guilty of falling into these type of non-First Commandment views as well, aren't we? Don't we Christians sometimes allow our, our times of prayer, our engaging in worship, our acts of devotion to deteriorate and maybe become a means of trying to keep God under control? If I just behave this certain way, then God will keep blessing me or if I would just pray harder or just do this stuff then I can make God do something for me may we not be like that 
And when we do that, what are we doing? We're trying to be God's God. We're trying to control Him. We're trying to control God for our own gain. It's just self-deification, isn't it? And isn't that disobeying the first commandment? When God calls us to obedience and repentance to the first commandment, it isn't necessarily just like this severe and harsh thing like that He always did, but it's absolutely a relieving thing. It's a helpful thing to see how we're sinning and we're serving an idol. And oftentimes we have to hear God say to us, I'm God and you're not. Right? We can't control and manipulate God. God is God. God is sovereign. And may we realize that and, and not forget that and obey the first commandment. No other gods before me. Samuel had a prophetic ministry that calls us to repentance. Verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So Mizpah is about six miles northwest of Jerusalem in the territory of Benjamin. And we notice from this verse that Samuel is not a prophet, but he's also an intercessor. Verse 6, So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now almost every scholar admits that they don't know what the water being poured out before the Lord means. But there are three major proposals for the meaning of this. One of them is that water equates to uh, uh, the tears of repentance. That they, they were sorrowful. Uh, another possibility is it spoke of abstinence. That they were willing to go without one of the necessities of life to show how serious they were. And a third one was that it was a ritual that, that showed that they believed that Yahweh was truly the fertility God or was, was the one that was sovereign and had control of everything. And we can speculate about all of this, but what's more important is, is a clear pattern that we find in Scripture regarding repentance. And apparently this is surrounding repentance. Repentance can begin with sorrow. It can begin with grief as, as reflected in verse 2. They, they lamented. Then it's followed by a ceremony as we see here with a real and, and this open acknowledgement of their previous sin. But notice this. It has to involve action. There is a call to action. Genuine, authentic repentance must have this tangible aspect to it. Notice in verse 6 that it was after they got rid of their idols that they could gather together at Mizpah and confess their sins. Confession without action is meaningless. Luke chapter 19, verses 5 through 10. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down, and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see how Zacchaeus had a tangible way of expressing his repentance. 
It was confession and action combined that prompted Jesus to voice the salvation for Zacchaeus. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. What caused the Philistines to attack? Perhaps they thought the Israelites were doing something more than worship. Maybe they thought they were getting ready for some military activity, so, th- so they reacted. We're not sure, it doesn't say. But we know, we know that the Israelites gathered for worship. And you, you can be guaranteed that, that when we gather to worship, that we will face opposition from evil. You can guarantee that when we gather to worship, that we will face opposition. And especially when we gather to confess. Notice the difference in the Israelites this time, though, from back in chapter 4. What do they do this time that they didn't do when they fought the Philistines in chapter 4? They prayed. They prayed. Before, they were just trying to use God. Hey, bring the ark out. We'll win. But this time, they actually talk with God. They pray with God. Have you ever wondered why we don't do what we do when we're in a crisis? Right In a crisis, why do we often uh, try to do things like manipulate God like in chapter 4 instead of just praying to God like in chapter 7? Why do I always try to bargain with God or doing things like that? Or like, I'll never do this again if you do this for me. Or why are we trying to always like, you know, manipulate Him? It seems so simple, but there's a huge difference in, in planning evangelism or doing the right approaches or using the right music or saying the right scriptures, etc. Whatever you want to put in there versus just going directly to God and asking God, God, help me. Help me. And you take a look at verse 8. The Israelites were pretty distant from God. They still were. They were, they were trying to do this repentance thing. And they understood that Samuel was more in tune to prayer than they were. So, so they asked Samuel. They asked Samuel to intercede for them. They say to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They beg Samuel to intercede for them. And Samuel does. Good leadership gives biblical direction to the people and effectively prays for them. I think you guys would be amazed at how little leadership truly cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. We see in verse 9 that Samuel takes a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And so here we have this act of atonement going on here. And on the basis of that, he cries out to the Lord for Israel. So there's atonement. And then there's intercessory prayer. And sure, there's leadership that prays. But to truly intercede for the people is another thing. Now what's the difference? You look at the end of verse 9. This is the difference. The Lord answered him. God gave victory to Israel. We, we need leaders who will intercede for those who follow them in prayer. To be intercessors and to have the ministry of intercession that that pleads to God on behalf of others. 
Verse 10. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Do you notice how this is a preview of Jesus' ministry? And what Jesus did for His people? Doesn't Jesus pray and intercede on our behalf to the Lord? What did Jesus say to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32? And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. Interesting thing is the you there is in the plural form. He's speaking to them. That he might sift you. This you is in the plural form also. Them. He's speaking to them. As wheat. Verse 32 is awesome. But I have prayed for you. Singular form. He points out to him specifically that your faith should not fail. Isn't that awesome? Jesus knows everything. He knows what he, Satan wants. He wanted to sift them. But Jesus said, I prayed for you. Specifically. He battles for you. He intercedes for you. That your faith may not fail. That's intercessory prayer. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says. He, who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The intercession of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And how about when a brother or sister intercedes for us? Pretty cool. Isn't that just such a deep encouragement? And doesn't that make you feel empowered when someone takes the time and the thought to pray for you? Such an encouragement, such an empowerment when fellow Christians intercede for us. But what about our Savior interceding for us? That's hot. Right? To hear Jesus say, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Why haven't some of us like buckled under, under the things that we're going through? Why haven't we just kind of like said, forget it? Isn't it because we have a Savior who knows how to pray for His people, to pray for you, singular? Verse 12, chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Who brought the victory here? God. God. It was all God. Notice that the Israelites' act of repentance was was that of an emotion. It was that of action. And it was asking for intercession from Samuel. But you also notice a sacramental type of ministry. And what I mean by this is that there's some symbolic yet definite sign, a definitive sign that remembers God's deliverance. In verse 12, you notice the word Ebenezer, which is that hymn, right? Come Thou Found. You ever wonder, what, what Ebenezer? Why are they mentioning like the Scrooge in the song? And now, now you know where it came from. If you didn't know before, it came from here. It, it's from this verse. And so some more contemporary versions of that hymn, um, they've taken Ebenezer out because they're biblically illiterate. 
They, don't, they think it's from Scrooge or something. So they take it out because they don't go through 1 Samuel. But this is where that verse gets Ebenezer from. Ebenezer is raised in remembrance of the victory the Lord has given to Israel. Samuel raises up this stone, this pillar, and calls it Ebenezer, the stone of help. The Lord has helped us to this point, all the way up to this point. God has helped us. It's a sacramental ministry, a ministry of remembrance. So now you know what Ebenezer means. But some of you may ask, you know, how in the world was God helping them in chapters 4 through 6? That didn't look like help at all. I think God was helping, though. Because back then there was this immoral, wicked, evil, corrupt, dangerous, ineffective leadership over Israel. And God got rid of them. So God was helping His people. And sure, he allowed the ark to be captured, but by doing that, what did God do? He helped his people. He, he taught his people not to believe in superstition and good luck charms, but to live by faith. To be faithful people. That just because they had God's furniture didn't mean that they had God. He showed them that he could take care of himself. That he could get the ark Back to Beth Shemesh, back to Israelite territory, all by himself. I don't need any search and rescue mission from the Israeli military. I can get the ark back by myself with these cows that have never been yoked that are nursing and walk nine miles. I can get them to do that by myself. He didn't need them. God was helping even though it looked like he was helpless. And it wasn't just these events that happened to them that, that they could re- reflect on these past 20 years or so. They could look back a little further. right? The Israelites could look back to Egypt in Exodus and see how God made a path to bring them out of Egypt. They could see how God miraculously sustained them in the wilderness all those decades with everything they needed to survive. How God brought them to Canaan at this impossible time when the Jordan River was flooded, but they, they were brought through that anyway. Or in the time of Judges, when it seemed like the Israelites were doing everything in their will to destroy themselves in faithlessness to the Lord. They were doing everything they could to distance themselves from God, yet still God kept them and brought them through their rebellion. And now we have Samuel taking a stone and setting it up and saying, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Everything that happened back then, up till now, He has helped us. How much more it is for us to remember God's deliverance upon our lives as, as, you know, we can go to the cross. We can go to the empty tomb. Things that are in Israel right now, things that are in Jerusalem right now, or, or the ascension of Jesus, we can go to these spots, these Ebenezers. There are a lot of different Ebenezers we have to show us that the Lord has helped us. Things we can look to, to remember. And we have these biblical commentaries. We can open up the Bible and we see all these Ebenezers. But we also have our, our, our personal commentaries too, don't we? Right? The things we have experienced to see how God has led us and directed us, directed our lives. Those of us who, who God has touched, we have our own personal Ebenezers, don't we? And hopefully we can remember the times of His help, His mercy, How God was there for us in in crucial decisions. How He appears to us in His 
perfect timing to help us in those critical moments of our life. And I'm sure we can all remember and point out many Ebenezers in our own life. One of my Ebenezers, my wife makes me a calendar every year. It's of the specific things that happen in a month. From when we dated um, till now. So, like when we dated, when we used to travel by ourselves, that was nice. I remember that. Or, or like our five-year anniversary when we took our trip. Or, or the different costumes my kids have worn through the years. Or the pumpkin patches we went to. And all this stuff. So in October this month, part it helps me recall the memories of things that happened in every October that we've known each other. All the things that I can be thankful for, all the things that I can see that God has, has carried us through, all the things that I can see that God has blessed us with, with provision and just guidance and things like that. And I look at, all the, I look at this all the time because it helps me to remember It helps me to be thankful. And we need this type of sacramental ministry, a ministry of remembrance. God wants us to take up and and set up our own Ebenezers and to remember and to reflect how up to this point in our lives, how He has helped us. And some of us need to go back home later today and, and look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and start remembering God's deliverances in your life. It's not that bad. He's helped you until this point. Have we forgotten how God has helped us? Are we not remembering the Lord's faithfulness to us? And may, may we never forget how the Lord has delivered us up to this point. He's been with us. And this, this book is carefully written. And I want to show you a pattern between chapters 4 and chapter 7. And we have a slide for that. And this is something that I uh, got from my professor and, and a mentor who, who taught First and Second Samuel. And he, he taught here a couple months ago. I don't know if you guys remember him, Dr. Bruce Boulogne. Um, somebody that's just been instrumental in my life. Someone that I look to as, as my Paul. And so, chapter 4, chapter 7. Do you see a clear difference between messing around with religious superstition Versus living by faith. Do you notice that the difference is prayer? The weapon is prayer. So what does this mean for our church? What does this mean for our families? What do we specifically need to pray for in our church? For the people we love? Now isn't God the same as He was for the people in Samuel's time? God's the same. So... Are we desperate to pray? And if we're not, why not? If if we could really see the desperation in needing to pray, we wouldn't just look at prayer as this religious action, but as the only thing that makes sense to bring change. The only thing that makes sense to bring about transformation in our culture, in ourselves individually. Yet, why are our times of prayer at the church so poorly attended? Why do we pray so little relative to other things that happen in ministry? Maybe because the enemy knows exactly what to pull from us more than anything else. 
This is our weapon. And I don't know, but if we really want to see change, it's going to happen through prayer. And you'll notice that Samuel is the subject of all the main action in this chapter. Verses 3, 5, 6, 9, 10, 12, 15. What is this telling us? These verses are telling us that good leadership is important. And then you'll notice that Samuel directed the people to set up a stone and call it Ebenezer, which means, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now why set up this stone? What do they do that is good? The stone helped them center. It helped them focus on who really brought them their victory. It helped them to focus their gratitude on God's grace. It was, it was a form of thanks for them. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territories from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so here we have a maintenance type of ministry. Right? It maintains, it sustains, it's fidelity. And we can see that Samuel protected Israel. He provided good leadership in that uh, he, he continued to provide direction and saw to it that fairness and justice continued in the community. And that's what judges implies, the verb judge. We see the word judge three times in these last three verses here. And this is not simply judging as we think about in our, our court systems. Because if you go back to verse 6, you'll notice the word judge there as well. Verse 6, So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel saw that the people of Israel were, were put into a right relationship with God in, in his judgment. So what we have in verses 15 through 17 is more of an oversight of their relationship with God. He wanted to ensure that the people were remaining faithful to God. And Samuel was maintaining their commitment to God. And you notice it was just an ordinary, routine thing he was doing. Year after year. Right? And you notice that the Philistines weren't attacking. That there wasn't some huge crisis. That there weren't some emergencies going on or huge dramas going on. This was just Samuel doing what he did every year to check up on Israel. And sometimes this is how the Christian life is. Ordinary and routine. There isn't always a ton of drama or things going on. And sure we have crisis, but it's usually routine and it's ordinary. And th things just go along and there aren't always Philistines on the horizon wanting to fight you. And sometimes it's just ordinary. It's just routine, like the workday tomorrow for most of you. But we need to be faithful in our everyday life, in the ordinary, in the routine. And there's a carryover in the ministry that Samuel was doing to what is happening here at the church, and in particular in the ministry of the Word. And that is the preaching and teaching ministry of this church. 
There's a carryover, and that carryover is that the ministry of the Word, the preaching, teaching the, at this church is not meant to provide you with thrills and chills and excitement. Drama. That's not what this is for. It's simply to try to show you a Savior. That's what it is, to point you to Jesus, who is sufficient enough for your life on Wednesday afternoon, which is much like your Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. Routine. Except it's, it, you know, it, it's just ordinary. God is not just around in our emergencies. He's not just around in our Sunday mornings or evenings when, when the Word is being teached and you're expecting something else when things look down or when, when things are desperate, He's with you in the ordinary times too. And He's in with your routine. He's with you all the time. So why do you elevate times like this? Preaching time should be more, should be thrills and whatever. Change us. I'm going to focus you to Jesus. If you want that stuff going like, I don't know, watch a movie. My main concern is simply to be faithful to Jesus when the Philistines aren't on the horizon wanting war. If that's the only time you run to Him, you're in trouble. Because you might pull out the ark and think that something's going to change for you. You might pull out the superstition card. To remain faithful in our ordinary, routine moments of our life. That should be our goal. Where we have to put one step in front of the other every day, week by week, month by month, year by year in our ordinary, routine lives. So in this chapter, we've seen a ministry of God's mercy. We saw a prophetic ministry calling us to repentance. And I pray that each one of us can individually point out a specific sin that we need to confess. And then take action on it. Not just, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Yes, but what? What did you do to offend God? What did you do to to not be in right relationship with Him? You have to identify that and you have to take action against that. And we saw an intercessory ministry that that supports us in our dangers. and, And I pray that any of us in leadership, that we really intercede for those who are following us. We have to. We have to. We saw a sacramental ministry that remembers deliverances, remembers how God helped. And I hope that we take the time, that we take the time to sit down and recall how God has helped us throughout our lives up to this point. And lastly, we saw a maintenance ministry, right, that that sustains commitment to God. You do that by remaining faithful in the ordinary, routine moments of your life. Not suddenly jumping into faithfulness because you're in trouble. Every day. You just do it. Not expecting something huge at a church or whatever. You walk in faith every day. And if the Lord still places these sorts of ministries among us, we know that He's extremely merciful to us, that He's extremely gracious to us. And I can personally attest that God has been extremely merciful, gracious to this church. Let's pray. Lord, You are awesome. And we ask, God, that You would forgive our church 
the leadership here for not interceding enough on behalf of those who are following. I ask God forgiveness for us trying to manipulate you in any way, looking at anything else that is not you. And we ask God that you would forgive us of violating any first commandment that we broke and putting another God before you. Lord, I pray that you would change us, that you would give us a heart to pray, to come before you and talk with you and not act out of our own flesh or ideas or things that we think are right. In Jesus' name, amen.